This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, just how out of date is the Canadian military? Richard Shamuka, defense expert and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, tells us why our military hardware is so out of date that we need to do something about it. We dig into the impact that has on morale and why we need to spend more than our NATO targets to fix it. Um, Hank the Hacker answers your cyber questions and tells us everything we need to know about VPNs. What are they and how they can help you as part of our summer of cyber safety? They can help you with your browsing, but they're not going to help you with viruses and scammers, just to be clear. Are you okay with, is also on the podcast, Cheese. And how about concert signs, or maybe more accurately, taking signs to concerts? This is the Shift Podcast. And joining me now is Richard Shamuka, all the way from not in Calgary. Um, I'm assuming you're in Ottawa. You never know, you academic, smart people. You guys travel. Hi, Richard. Hi. I'm actually in uh, Metro Vancouver. Vancouver. See, there you go. This is the way it always works out, doesn't it? Well, Richard, thank you for being a part of the shift. I appreciate you being here. He's a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, and um, he's our military guy. He's our buddy. Now, Richard, there's lots been going on. Our original intention was to ask you about Bombardier, which we will get to. Um, the government, while the prime minister has been out and about doing NATO things, making some commitments for Canadians to increase, um, some presence in other places. I thought maybe we'd start there. What do you see that's going on? Oh, well, so there's, uh, in the last couple of days, he's basically, uh, while he was in, uh, Estonia, I believe he made an announcement that we would, uh, that we were, there was already sort of talk that we were going to do this. So we were going to beef up our existing um, force that is in the Baltics, uh, which is currently, I think, around 700 troops, and it's going to be bumped up to around 2,000, 2,200 or so, uh, and that uh, this would occur over the next three years, and I believe it's earmarked $2.6 billion for this, um, for this deployment, which is basically intended to sort of save off or, or sort of provide reassurance to our eastern uh, NATO members uh, against you know, Russia's sort of aggressive posture that, that they've been sort of undertaking, obviously, in Ukraine, but certainly towards them as well. Now, it's Latvia where Canada's had these troops, which borders right there on all of the things. And it's Lithuania's where some of these conversations are happening. And then Estonia's that little uh, nugget of goodness right in there, too. And so it does increase a whole bunch more. Uh, Richard, with the Canadian military and current Troop inventory levels, uh, you know, 1,200 troops, based on some basic math, is a 2 or 3% increase. Really, that seems like a lot when we are short. Yeah, so the force size will be around a uh, full brigade, uh, or sorry, halfway, I should say. Uh, and it's, it's around 2,000 troops, uh, or that will be its final size. It's going to be a significant undertaking for the Canadian forces to actually meet that task. And three areas that they are really deficient in is is basically uh, they have no existing air defense systems that are able to sort of counter some of the um, drones and, and airborne threats that we see are very effective in, in Ukraine. Uh, they don't have a modern artillery system, uh, one that's mobile and survivable. So we see Ukraine again. A very effective sort of use of uh, artillery uh, on mass, 
you know, we just don't have a system like that. We have an older system called the M777. Not, uh, it's, it's a toad system. You have to stop, take it all apart, put it into place, fire it. It's not a really survivable system. And the big thing is that our command and control systems are actually quite antiquated. So how do we command our troops in the field? There's an ongoing program for this and all the other two, but they're well, they're well overdue. They're not really going to be seen to be... It's, it's questionable if they'll ever arrive in time to meet this three-year time frame that the, the Prime Minister has announced in the past couple of days here. So it's going to be a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of people wondering how they're actually going to do this. Uh, I would say some of them might even be in the military. Uh, but uh, it's it's not it's it's going to be a little a little dicey in the next couple of years here. Well, so the last numbers that I saw reported were sixty eight thousand active personnel, twenty seven thousand reserve personnel, and about five thousand rangers. That, that I mean, that's almost four percent. That seems like a lot. Uh, Canada makes these commitments often. It seems like you know when you look at the NATO numbers and the two percent of GDP. Uh, nobody has intention of ever actually making it. But can you imagine what it would be like, Richard, if we did get 2% of GDP? Uh, is that even enough to get our military caught up? You talked about antiquated systems that wouldn't really help much anyway other than be great targets. Um, would that even really start to get us caught up, or do we need more than that? Well, we certainly need more than that. So what's happening right now within NATO uh, is that a lar- a large, several countries have basically increase their uh, defense spending dramatically in some cases, like in Germany, in order to hit that 2% benchmark because they have basically seen what is the potential for Russian um, aggression there in, in their backyard. And so they've, they've sort of realigned their priorities. I think it's been like six countries currently meet it and several more are going to meet it this coming year, uh, that 2% benchmark. So it's there's been a change within NATO to sort of take this more seriously, put the spending in and and sort of build forces that are able to sort of be effective. The problem in Canada's case is that we've been very effective at deploying our forces. And if you talk to a lot of sort of our allied sort of uh, you know, allied sort of personnel, they'll, they'll speak glowingly of the actual capability of the Canadian armed forces, especially their personnel. They say they're very, very adept. They're very sort of good soldiers that are able to sort of do what they need to the big thing that we've not been spending on is sort of renewing the equipment that they need. And in a lot of cases, you have Canadian Forces uh, equipment that's nearing 30, 40, sometimes even 50 years uh, old, and they're hopelessly antiquated. And it really is a sore point, not among, even among the troops themselves, it, it really affects morale. It affects their ability to actually do the job that they need to do, uh, to, you know, to be, to protect themselves, to effectively sort of, undertake the missions that they're being called upon to do and and so it's a problem all around and the specific part of our defense spending that we really underspent on has been that capital renewal and and this has gone on so many years now we've called we've got something called a bow wave where there's been accumulated a number of programs that have been delayed 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 so that it's going to take a lot more money to sort of to to get over the hump and, and sort of replace all these equipment in a sort of uh, quick, as quick and effective a manner. And we don't have the capacity to some degree within the Department of National Defense to do all of this because there's just so many programs. Everywhere you look within the Canadian Forces, we really need to replace a lot of the equipment that, that they currently use because it is so old and out of date. So let me ask you this, Richard. We hear these NATO conversations that are sort of changing around the world, right? Like Turkey's changed its tune. And uh, Ukraine has been told, you know, here's some very clear conditions for you. 
one of the things is, of course, is being able to be compatible with NATO. But when you talk about Canada and Canada being so old, doesn't that add stress to NATO too? I mean, I realize that, you know, simply speaking, we're all on the same cell phone network as NATO, if, if you if you will allow that. Um, but really, when we're talking about such old, antiquated, uh, you know, pieces of machinery and and uh, military gear, wouldn't that be uh, one of the problems for NATO is when a country like Canada is so far behind that there's just elements that can't compete? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, to use your analogy, we are, in some cases, in our communication gears, we're using the flip phone, a flip phone equivalent <laughs> versus whereas, you know, we have uh, Apple, you know, whatever we have, 13, right? Or, or whatever, right? Right. The sort of most modern sort of capability. And, and if you look at where the development of um, modern sort of military systems, one of the biggest revolutions that's going on right now, the stuff that Penny's been talking about because we're so far behind is you're seeing the development of sort of um, AI and these sort of really complex battlefield networks where all the systems are sort of brought together and all the data is kind of pulled together and then they have this unraveled sort of untraveled sort of view of the battlefield where they have all the information that's been brought in and, and sort of processed and they can identify, oh, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a potential for attack here and this and that. Canada's not even close to a lot of this stuff. Canada's only starting at this and, and because we are so behind all of us. And, and if you talk to some of our allies, they feel pretty bad for us. So in some cases, they donate equipment to us or they, wow. you know, to, in order for us to be effective or so that we can be interoperable with them in order so that we aren't holding them back. And that's really the challenge that the Canadian forces are facing right now is, is that, that, as I said before, that we have so underspent on the capital renewal that always has to happen. Like, this is, this is the thing that with militaries that you have equipment that you bought maybe 20, 30 years ago that you really need to replace in an orderly manner. And because we haven't been doing that for over the last decade here, it's caught up to us. And then there's the stuff that now is at 30 years versus the stuff that's at 40 or 50 years that, is, that all has to be replaced at once. And it's a real challenge. And you're seeing the department really kind of struggle with a lot of these sort of issues. Uh, you don't have to comment on the politics. I can do that. Um, that's up to you. But it must be incredibly frustrating when you see politically all of these, you know, grandstanding of we're giving this away, we're giving that away, when realistically in the background, other countries are like, hey, Canada, here, take this. We'll help you. I mean, the, the hypocrisy seems a little thick, Richard. I think so to, to bring it back to this announcement that, you know, we're bringing 22 uh, 2,200 troops or 2,000 troops into into the enhanced foreign presence in Latvia. There's two ways to look at it. One is certain, yes, Canada's a you know, strong you know, supporter and, and is defending the eastern border. The other side of it is that Canada wasn't going to meet, is, is trying to push off the the fact that they aren't going to meet the 2% or have not announced it and, and has kind of been, been a, seen as clearly as a laggard. And, you know, you see sort of official statements and sort of my discussions with American officials. They're very, they're not very happy with this. They find this situation really sort of galling to some degree, how this has not been addressed. Uh, they understand, yes, it's, it's budget and, and this is national priorities and, and they don't want to comment about this stuff sort of publicly, but certainly it, behind closed doors, they're not happy with Canada. They've made that very clear. And this is true for most of the NATO allies, right? 
Mm, and so yeah. announcements that, oh, yeah, we're deploying 2,000 troops in some ways is trying is an attempt to sort of allay the sort of really pointed kind of comments to Canada is like, well, you're by you're not even close to me. You're you're two percent. Uh, you're two percent objective. You know, you're one point two nine. Maybe you'll get to one point five in a couple of years. But we don't even have real we, we don't have much confidence going to do that, given what you've done. Right. And, and we're we're certain we're at the very, very lower end of the bounds of the NATO, of the major NATO, NATO, uh, NATO members, for especially one is sort of rich and, and sort of prosperous compared to some of the other ones that are part of the alliance. Yeah, I've said this before, and again, I'm offering because of your, your, your job and the opportunity to not comment if you don't want, but I always, our government is very much like that weird broke uncle, that they go to all the parties and they hand out five bucks to everybody to look like the cool uncle because we show up, we're like, yeah, you get five bucks. The kids all get five bucks. Woo! And then we ghost the party uh, in our rental car that's not even our car and probably our rented tuxedo because we don't even have the five bucks that we just gave away. I mean, this is a recurring pattern in, in Canada in general, and um, it seems evident in this as well. I mean. I think you, I would say this is one way of looking at it is that Canada, I think Canadians in general, for the most part, feel that we should be doing our fair share, that we should be a, a good partner in international relations uh, among our allies and, and do our part. Right. And we've been led to believe that we you, you look at and this is not just the current government, but previous governments have sort of been out and saying, look at us, we're, we're a good partner and all that. The reality, though, is that our partner, our allies and partners, they see through this because they understand what military capabilities is, what's the requirements that are needed in order to provide an effective defense or for, provide security, you know, in Eastern Europe or in other places, right? And they can see through the sort of the rhetoric and the sort of announcements and say, look, I mean, 2% is a guideline. 2% of GDP is, is kind of a one way of looking, but they can look at, as I was pointing out before, with our potential deployment of, you know, 2,000 troops, they can see, well, where's your artillery? You know, what, what are you going to provide? It? What, you know, how, you're going to provide 20 tanks out of, you know, this size. It, they, they see through these numbers. They see through the announcements to the actual hard capabilities, and they know what Canada can provide. And again, privately, they're not happy. They're, they've clearly made that. And I, there was the leaks uh, earlier this year uh, from the Washington Post about how our allies basically said this is not acceptable. This is no longer. And, and so I think Canadians are now confronted with this really unsettling reality that, you know, as you say, we're kind of the, we're kind of the poor uncle that's kind of coming to this, this situation. And they don't, I don't know if they're really that happy with that. To some yeah. I, I don't know if that's going to be a big election issue. But certainly I think there's a, there's, there is an uncomfortable feeling that, we aren't really playing our, uh, our our part, and and that's not really a good place to be. All right, let's talk about sustainability. When the pandemic hit, Richard, we saw a shortage of chips. And one of the things that did come uh, sort of quietly in the background of the news cycle was that the shortage of, chip, shortage of chips also meant that they couldn't build more rockets when Russia invaded Ukraine because they couldn't get chips for those rockets. And then a lot of people said, well, wait a second, we have to go to China or wherever to get chips? For our rockets to protect our country, that works really well unless we disagree with the country that's making the chips. And that's changed an awful lot of the political and manufacturing landscape of what was happening around chips. 
and uh, being able to do all that. Here in Canada, we don't produce much. Bombardier wants to make planes for us. But what we've seen with the Canadian uh, military in the past, with the Navy, the Coast Guard, and all of the other absolute disaster of homegrown development, um, I, I can't help but be with mixed emotion when I say it would be really great if Canada could build some of this stuff at home. But also, wow, do we ever have a real good ability to screw that up? Said it pretty well. Uh, I, and I think that that's basically the challenge that we're seeing this as, as in this specific program and for many others. I think the reality a bit of defense manufacturing, which and this is the area, this is actually my like sort of core area of interest, is, is that defense production is, is kind of like, is kind of tracked with globalization. And, and you see, like, you think, you think about a car, and I, I think I remember said, like, parts where cars go, like, uh, that are produced in Ontario go across the border, like, something like a thousand times, so like that. Like, just, like, the amount of the sort of, the, the cross-border sort of part is built here, and then there's another part that comes back and forth, right? And, and that's similar for, um, for in defense production, especially among allies. Canada and the United States actually is one of the closest defense manufacturing arrangements and this goes back to the early, the late 1950s and early 1960s. Canada and the United States actually signed an agreement to say that you can't really kind of prior, you can't, the, the usual tariff barriers that would, that would have applied at the time aren't, wouldn't be sort of put, wouldn't be applied. We're going to produce equipment in a way that, that allows the sort of uh, Canadian uh, manufacturers to be subcontractors on big American uh, equipment. So, when you think about uh, one of the contenders for uh, the what's called the uh, Canadian Mer- uh, multi-mission aircraft, which is the um, the replacement for the CP-140 Aurora, which is this uh, maritime patrol aircraft, and this is what Bombardier wants to build, but they don't have an existing aircraft to do this, uh, is the Boeing P-8, which is used virtually by almost all of our major allies in this role. And that aircraft, significant parts of it are actually built in Winnipeg. Uh, and in Manitoba, because it's a 737, and that's because we produce parts for the American uh, for 737s. And, and there's other aspects of it that are built in Canada as well already. At the same time, Bombardier, parts of that are going to be built in, in the United States and other countries as well, just because of just the nature of the cross-border nature of the globalized kind of economies that we live in, right? So it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly sort of clear-cut in some degree. Now, if Bombardier is going to do this, it's going to give Canada more of an ability to sort of modify the aircraft uh, and sort of customize potentially some of this aspect. But that also means you're paying for all the development costs. And that is going to be a very, very large bill, right? I, I believe the Americans spent something like $10 billion, I think, on the development of the P-8. I mean, we would have to do something similar, right? Or uh, That's just, I, I don't know the exact number, but that kind of gives you illustrate. How much are we just have to develop the aircraft? That's not buying the aircraft afterwards, right? Well, and they, and and they already like, had the fundamental chassis of the aircraft to start with. Oh, so Absolutely. But Bombardier has one. They have. Yeah, they that's have what I mean. That's what I mean. Bombardier. Oh, like Bombardier doesn't really not like the 737 for, for giant reliability, but I guess you're right. They do, they do have one. But I mean, it, it's just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it is a remarkable difference in the resources and the platform that they're starting with. Uh, and that that is a major challenge. Now, Bombardier has experience in doing this sort of work. They do a lot of this, but this is on another level of technical difficulty that's beyond that. Right? This is a major, major modification to the aircraft. And, and 
I can tell, like, I think that many people within the Canadian Forces and the Air Force are, are very uncomfortable with this because they've gone through this just recently with the CH-148, uh, the, the Cyclone, which is our current, uh, was the replacement for the Sea King. And it's had multiple teething problems. And what they've got is what is kind of known as a unicorn. We're the only user of this one type of aircraft. And that means we're responsible for everything. Right. Whereas like they look at something like the P8 that is used by, again, almost all of our five eyes allies, uh, you know, you, uh, the, uh, the Indian Air Force uses it. They see an aircraft that they say, yes, it may not be exactly perfect, but it's reliable. It's there. It's in service and it'll be in service for many years. It's much better to go with this option. Right. And so that reality, I think, kind of is how they see it, is that, yes, it would be nice to go with the Made in Canada option. But the risks involved this and the potential cost overruns are really scary. And I think that that really, that really kind of gets to the point of, the, of the, the crux of how government kind of is kind of looking at this. It's like, we can just get this over with, pay the money and have it done and not have to worry about it. Or we could be involved in a potentially 15-year-long development program that, yeah, we think it might work, but we can't be sure. And what happens if it doesn't work at the end? Well, we're in, you know, we spent all this money and we don't have a capability. We may have a suboptimal capability that doesn't really meet our requirements. Uh, such a scary notion. I mean, uh, this is one of those things where Bombardier says, hey, let us build the plane. And then Canada says, okay, you build the plane. And then Bombardier guys says, okay, well, tell you what, give us a billion dollars so we can build the, the place to build the plane. And then we'll sell the plane to you. I mean, some of the numbers and online awesome. is that Bombardier has received over $4 billion since 1966. And, and so, and that's the challenge. This is, this is true for all defense procurement. So this is kind of like the theory behind it, is that the minute that you sign a contract with a manufacturer, your power goes right out the window. They have you over a barrel, right? Because you've, you've, you've already put the money into it. And then if you have to switch to a different aircraft or a different option, you've got to spend all the money. I mean, it's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy. But yeah. you still have to spend the money to go for it. And you have a question. It's like, should we keep spending more? We had this exact issue in around 2015 with the Cyclone helicopter because the the helicopter is not seeing as being as to what they were specified. And there was a real question whether or not the government should continue spending on this or go buy it off-the-shelf option, something that already exists that's used by many of our allies. And it was pretty close, but they kept going with the money they had already spent with the CH-148. So... And that that experience, I think, is, has kind of inured many people within the military to say, mm, let's not do this again. Let's just go with a safe option. Let's go with something we know that, again, may not be the perfect option. And certainly we do, we're not going to maybe get the best industrial benefits for Canada. We'll get most of them. But this is a much safer thing than the potential risk that we're incurring with the other options. Well, if we go to war with America, we got bigger problems than worrying about aircraft parts. So um, I would say that's probably a safe bet, wouldn't it be? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Richard Chimuka. This is really what's best for Canada. It's, I mean, in, in the economic, it's not a clear answer. It's a political question to some degree that has to be answered. Uh, it does. Richard Chimuka joining us at McDonald-Laurie Institute. The state of the Canadian military and the shopping that we need to do. Uh, let's just hope you and I get the air miles for, uh, on the credit card when they do it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Sammy. This is the Shift Podcast. System breach. 
just happened? Someone hacked me! All right, Hank the Hacker is here. Hank Fordham, uh, welcome back to the show. It's our summer of cyber safety, Hank. And uh, I had someone try to scam me just today on Facebook, I can tell you. Uh-oh. What happened? Yeah. I just was selling something out of the house, and then they offered to... Um, and it's somebody they've been active, super active in these... You know, I looked at the timeline, and it was like 17 posts from yesterday... 20 posts the day before like they clog up the timeline with recent posts so you don't dig too deep looking for how long they've been on right yeah and um and it was i was selling something online it was my ask was 80 dollars. they said no problem i'll give you all of the money and um someone's going to come to the house and they're going to give you an envelope and and i'm not giving them cash because i don't know who they are but they're a delivery service so they'll give you an envelope with a check inside and it's cleared it's a certified check or something and then, so then you just give them the item and then they'll take it. But I mean, they're willing to scam for an $80 used item. Like that's crazy. Oh, a- absolutely. And I, you know, I've even seen them go for um, saying like, yeah, I'll send you a PayPal transfer. And then they, they refund the PayPal transfer. And I always tell people, you know, the safest way to go about it with online purchases, if you're not comfortable with doing e-transfers, um, is just cash, you know, a cash transfer hand to hand. I actually had a friend recently and she had someone offering her a job. So they, they posted in a pretty well-known and pretty reputable group on Facebook for job offers. And it, it turns out that, you know, people were even targeting this group and uh, reaching out, kind of trying to dig for information and dig for private information. And, the advice that I gave to her that turned out to uh, not only land with a, a potential job interview with the real company, but um, really kind of mitigate this and, and bite it in the butt right away was reach out to the company. You know, if 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 you're being contacted by someone and even as far as just, you know, we have a job offer for you, don't don't feel like reaching out to the company by sending them an email and confirming that job offer is going to inconvenience anyone because they'll be happy to respond back to you and let you know if it is or if it isn't real. Hmm. Well, uh, here's a personal story to that. I had reached out to Hank to get help on a situation because I had somebody call me and say, hey, I wanted to follow up on this job offer. And that's exactly what it was, was they, they, someone had reached out and uh, created a spoof version of my website um, as a business and they started offering people jobs. And that's, and so someone actually phoned me and said, Hey, by the way, you know, this is, this is what I was looking for as the, is the job of payroll services or whatever still available. And, um, and that was it. So it, it worked out for me because they didn't. Um, they didn't scam that person. I said, "I'm really sorry." I said, "But this is a scam. You're, someone's trying to scam you right now." And uh, they were like, "Well, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I asked and and everything else." So that was averted. But this is happening all the time, everywhere, isn't it? Well, and and especially with with companies starting to you know be, because of COVID, starting to move to remote working and and having people work from home, it it kind of brings the importance and. 
you know, if, if you are working from home, kind of keeping up with security settings, you know, keeping um, keeping up abreast with the, the latest kind of, I guess, security breaches, if you will, if you're um, we, we've mentioned have I been pwned a few times before, but um, I just I, I constantly think of, you know, the, these top things to really put yourself in in the advantage being two-factor authentication and changing passwords and but another really important thing that people might kind of neglect or they might not realize when you're working from home it's important that you know even if you're not working that you're using a vpn and they're getting really competitive they're in, in, in terms of pricing they're getting cheaper and cheaper um, sometimes they're even offering lifetime packages for a pretty competitive price. So definitely get a hold of a VPN and and use that, um, especially for you know web banking from home or, or working from home and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we will talk about more of that in just one second. I wanted to pass on this one question while we were talking about listeners. Um, one text comes in from Edmonton says, hi, Hank, how do scammers get a hold of so much information about me? I received a call claiming to be my bank and they had all kinds of info about me. They asked to me to provide my account number, transit number, branch code, which I didn't provide as I felt it was a scam. Um, safe to say that your bank will never ask you for your account numbers or any of those things. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. Anything that creates access to the account, they won't. Um, I got a call from CRA last week. And um, they were asking me for my birth date and all that stuff. And I just flat out told them, I said, I'm not having this conversation with a stranger on the phone. And so, yeah. you know, they say, no problem, call back, um, Google it, call us back. And any one of my colleagues can talk to you and everything else. So um, how do they get so much information about us and uh, where do they get it from? You know, that's the tricky part. And and before, a, a few years ago, it would have been a little bit harder because they have to dig a little bit more to find this information. But as as we get more of you know social media platforms and those become a little bit more public um it, it's not difficult for them to mine that even if you know say you shared something in the past and you figured out or you realized that that's something you shouldn't share i'm going to use say say you posted a photo and in the photo it had the your house number in the background and you removed that because you realized it was exposing your address. But even though you removed it, people can still access that data because it's archived on the internet. And going even further, if you're using, you know, let's say you're using the same password, password123, on all of the services that you're using, if one of those services gets hacked and you know the hacker figures out all of the usernames and all of the passwords for that website um then they can actually go and there and there's tools now that actually kind of specialize in this but they can take that password and and the email associated with it and they can try it against a, a plethora of different websites and so they can keep trying to get in but the way that they they get this information that's the tricky part and that's why when you're sharing things on social media, the best thing that you can do is just be careful about what you're sharing. And when you're signing up for websites, make sure that you're only sharing your your most sensitive information with really reputable sources. And by that, I mean, like, 
you know, we're not afraid to share information with our bank and, and put information into our bank account, but um, we should probably be a little bit more careful about putting information on uh, LinkedIn or making your, your email, your personal email exposed on LinkedIn, for example. Um, so it's a difficult question to answer, but it really relies on when you, when you boil it down to its most base uh, form, it, it relies on your level of interaction with things on the internet. So if you're doing, you know, internet-based web banking, then there is that potential that someone can intercept that information. So, well, there's a lot to be had there. One thing that I do when I go to the store or I sign up for a newsletter for coupons, I actually have a coupon Gmail account that is literally like, it's not Shane's coupons, but it is something simple like that. Just because I, that's the one I give away for situations like that. And I always, when I sign up for something that I don't know what it is, but to get more information, for example, I always spell my name wrong. Um, and so I, I can always tell where things are coming from, for example, because little things like that can make all the big difference in the world. But you're talking about accessing this information and we haven't talked about AI from this perspective. If you're talking about these photos, like you post a picture of the front, here's my new house or here's my new baby plus their middle name and all these things that we post online. And, you know, if, if people can go in and those way back website finders and whatever and see these pictures. But isn't it interesting to think that maybe AI could actually start to do all the searching um, on a bad guy's behalf and just literally kind of like Google alerts, right? Track everything that somebody's posting and search through those pictures for potential house numbers, potential dates, potential information, brothers, sisters, whatever. I, I got a shiver up my spine because that actually does exist right now. Oh God, don't say that. Yeah. I, I won't name a service or anything, but, yeah. um, it and the service i i will say it is monitored heavily to make sure that people aren't misusing it but um they can take like you know an image i and i've tried it on myself as well and they put it into the service and it searches everywhere <laughs> and it'll tell you if it finds images that have a likeness to you and it can even give you a percentage of the likeness to you and um you know, I don't, I don't have some big secret advice for avoiding uh, facial recognition or, any, or anything. But um, what I will say is that you know the the masks definitely put a bit of a speed bump in uh, facial recognition. Um, but I'm not about to encourage everyone to keep wearing masks everywhere yeah. just to avoid. <laughs> Yeah, right. That was uh, that was hard enough for its own reasons. Um, okay, well, there you go. So we are battling this, and the human error part is going to seriously kick in if we don't pay attention. Hank the Hacker is here. Um, we wanted to talk about – let me double-check, make sure that was the last question that I saved. That was the last one that's there for now. 877-399-9898 if you have one for Hank. Okay, working from home. You talked about a VPN. Um, tell us about a VPN. People aren't going to want to pay for them. There are also VPN scams out there. So how do you go about this and what is the whole point of it anyway? Um, kind of like having an unlisted phone number not in the phone book. Kind of like having your caller ID turned off on your phone so it says, you know, no caller ID when you phone people. These are bits and pieces that are sort of what's happening. Is, is that a safe comparison? 
Yeah, so like just to quickly explain a VPN, it's like a it stands for virtual private network. So what it does is, you know, imagine you live at 123 53rd Street. Um the VPN says you actually live at 124 53rd Street or whatever and uh, that's a very basic example, but it changes your location, your IP address. Um, but the most important thing is if if there is a hacker listening in on on your internet or anything like that, doing a man in the middle, um, the VPN encrypts your your communication online. So what that means is it it kind of makes it all jarble. And if the hacker is looking at it, it won't make any sense to them. They won't be able to view any plain information. And, you know, so past having a, a multi-factor authentication and, and changing your passwords every 30 to 90 days, which is really important in itself, um, this VPN adds that that extra layer on top of everything. Um, in terms of like finding the right one, that's uh, again, that's the tricky part. I can name a couple. I really like NordVPN. Um, I know there's one called Fastest VPN, and they offer a lifetime subscription. Uh, and so you, but you just have to do your uh, a little bit of research. You know, a, a lot of big companies are starting to offer VPN solutions as well. I know that Norton offers one. Um, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't recommend them but uh definitely you know if if you're curious nord vpn is definitely worth looking into okay so it is fascinating it scrambles the information if you will but how does it work is it you're connecting directly to their server first and then from their server kind of like people understand the word proxy right proxy when you have someone who's a proxy legally for you they take care of voting for you. If you're in a condominium, you can have your condo board vote through a proxy vote, meaning that I sign over my my vote authority to Ryan O'Donnell, so Ryan O'Donnell can vote on my behalf for the board member. So proxy is a good word um, for this as well that a lot of people have in their everyday life. So is that a good description about what's happening in the background with, with services like this? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it usually makes it like super user friendly. So Nord, the reason I use Nord as an example is because they actually have an app on the phone as well. And so you literally, it's as easy as like you, you tap connect or, or tap a button and it, it will, you know, another really easy way of thinking of it is instead of browsing from your computer or your phone now, you're browsing from a secure device elsewhere in the world. And the communication with that device makes no sense to anyone else except for you. So it's like, even if a hacker was watching, it wouldn't make any sense to them. And it, it's nice because for the end user, it makes it as easy as just clicking that button. Um, and you also get some side uh, privileges, like you can watch American Netflix and whatever else if that's your thing. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, because it does kind of hide where you're coming from, right? Yeah, it'll make it look like you're in a different country. And so you can access, um, you know, going on YouTube, uh, if you have like a, a video blocked in your country, a VPN will actually make it so you can watch that video as well. So these are all of the... Um... 
these are all the examples how the technology is there. It's the humans that get tangled up in it, and we we are the weakest link, right? I, you know, it seems to be that way, and I I can only say that I I like to think things are getting better, and uh, you know, just that's why I always say try and awareness is the biggest, uh, I guess, tool, if you will, mm-hmm. when it comes to protecting yourself. If if you're aware of these things happening. And and that's why I always mention, have I been pwned as well? You know, if you can go on there and search your phone number and your email, then you're aware that there might be some kind of a breach out there. And, um, you know, if, if you're interested in figuring out exactly what that is, maybe we can work something out for shift heads. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's, it is interesting that, um, that, that you do that. And I went through that and looked at the words with friends hack that had happened. So I actually let my parents know and said, Hey, by the way, don't be surprised if you get a lot of, uh, weird things because this is what's happening. You guys both play words with friends. Another text comes in from Winnipeg. It says, if I install a VPN on my PC, are my other devices protected? So if you s- install it on your PC, the nice thing with, uh, with a lot of these VPN providers, I'm not sure which one you're talking about in particular, but I'll, I'll speak on, on Nord. Um, if you install Nord VPN on your PC, they usually have the option to also install it on other devices. So once you install it on your PC and you click the connect button, then you're protected on that computer. So you would also want to install it on your phone um, your tablet, you can put it on any of your other devices as much as you're allowed within your subscription plan. Uh, and then it'll protect that device that it's running on as well. So just kind of to summarize, run it on your computer and it'll protect your computer and then run it on um, each other device you want to protect. So if, if you want to protect your phone, you should also have it installed and running on your phone. Um, does it slow down your connection? Uh, it, it can it can slow down your connection, but the nice thing about again the nice thing about um, most VPN providers, and I'll speak on Nord again, uh, is that they have the option to use servers. I'll, I'll use that, or proxies that are local or close to you. So in our case, we would you know we would probably have um, Toronto and Seattle, and those make your connections a lot quicker. So. It doesn't necessarily make it slower. Um, you just have to, you just have to look for the right provider, and you can also see which locations they serve as well. So, just like having your Netflix app on your phone or your tablet, plus logging into it on your set-top box or your TV, it's kind of the same thing. As long as you have multiple devices, you would use it the same way, and yeah. uh, and it goes there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So there you go. That's what a VPN is. That's the benefit of the VPN. They are, uh, in most cases, a paper service kind of use. Um, you're going to subscribe to them, but they do offer a lot of basics, but it does not protect you from someone calling you and saying, Hey, by the way, give me your birth date and your credit card number with expiry date. Um, it does not save you from someone who's sending you an email saying, click this link to see the cool picture and it downloads software on your computer. That one's up to you. Um, don't let anyone have remote control access of your phone that you don't know. Don't want to let anyone have remote control access of your computer that you don't know, because these are, um, these are the things that no VPN is going to stop that one, friends. 
Um, these yeah. are um, these are human errors. Yeah, absolutely. Scary stuff. Okay, next week, same time. If you have more questions for Hank the Hacker, make sure you text them in, or excuse me, email them. Go to shiftheads.ca. The emails are better because they're impossible to track the hundreds and thousands of text messages that we get, and we cannot track the ones that go after hours because they go to the other shows. So do go to Shane at itstheshift.ca or just itstheshift.ca. Link to it from shiftheads.ca, and we'll all be there too. Hank, brother, thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for listening, everyone. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... 877-399-9898. That's our phone number for you to share with us your thoughts on stories like these. Are you okay with cheese? It just makes almost everything better. There are some things that you should not, you know, you don't need cheese with, but I love this food so much. And I, uh, I, I think of my uncle, whenever I think of cheese. And the reason why is because my uncle used to make fun of my mom all the time for being lactose intolerant. He then became lactose intolerant. So I have never made fun of my brother who is lactose intolerant. Not once, never done it. Or my mom. Because I cannot lose cheese. I will not. It is that important to me. I love wow. cheese. That's now, pretty strong stuff. I didn't... Um... I didn't uh, know that was a thing. I like That's, the, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Cheese and crackers, wow. like g- great shift snack, mm. breakfast on a burger. Like if you have a McDonald's burger without cheese, it's just, it's just, it's just bread and, and, and burg. It's not that good. But <laughs> cheese helps seals it. Uh, okay. I, I'm very, very good. Uh, you are yes, very passionate very. about cheese. I, I had no idea. I mean, cheese, the flavor is great. Different flavors of the cheese, the different cheeses, starting to get uh, a little bit more into learning about flavors and cheese and stuff like that. Bought some provolone, I guess, last week. I made myself a little um, Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich. So got a little provolone on there. Go through the store. You can buy the super expensive provolone or you can get the pre-sliced stuff. I don't know. Like, There's lots to learn there. But could you actually sit down and just eat cheese? And could you sit down and eat cheese like Homer Simpson. Mm, 64 slices of American cheese. 64. 63. Two. One. Have you been up all night eating cheese? I think I'm blind. I actually had to edit that clip quite a bit because the sounds he makes when he's oh, eating so gross. is so disgusting. Oh, but it's so funny. Yeah, it's uh, it's gross. I mean, that's what my dog sounds like when she eats, when she got a big <laughs> fat mouth. When when my dog decides to drink water, for example, uh, like Brian hears it. I can always hear it through the Zoom calls. Yeah. When we start and come back from commercial break here on the shift, I have to tell her to like go lie down. <laughs> it's so incredibly loud. So that's what Homer sounds like. It's just bigger. So if you think you could eat cheese like Homer Simpson, then man oh man, does Ryan O'Donnell have a deal for you? 
Well, if you don't eat meat, well, you're in luck. Burger King now introducing a new vegetarian option for the mega cheese lovers out there. Look at this. The new burger alternative is a bun containing up to 20, yes, 20 slices of cheese and no other toppings. The fast food chain calling it the real cheeseburger. Burger King launched the new menu offering in Thailand on Sunday, writing on Facebook, quote, this is no joke. This is for real. <laughs> the burger was on sale for a special $3.10 on Sunday. It's now priced a little bit higher than that at $10.99. Okay. Help me out here, Brian. Uh, that's yes. from Need Need to Know, by the way. So right. that is like a bun with cheese and a bun. That's it. Yes. So uh, Homer Simpson in that clip, he you know he pulls the stack of cheese slices, like Kraft Singles, out of the fridge and eats it one by one. So now imagine that you bought 20 Kraft Singles and stacked it on a Burger King bun with nothing else. No ketchup, no mayo, no beef, nothing between two buns and took a bite out of that. It's literally essentially a block of cheese between two buns. Hmm. That's and, um okay. <laughs> disgusting. As someone who loves cheese, this is an abomination. Abomination. Okay. Okay. Um the, the, they said that um this is okay and Thai residents are flocking to bite it. On TikTok, one Thai user shared the video of the outrageous sandwich and said he at first thought that the menu was a joke, and then he counted 20 sheets of American cheese on his burger. 20 sheets. Translation. Um, he described the burger as greasy but delicious, uh, and then he never pooped again. Uh, Richard Barrow, a travel guide and popular blogger in Thailand, wrote on Twitter that he struggled eating even half of this burger, in quotes, uh, Eric E. Serbano, a writer at Lifestyle Asia, claimed to try the real cheeseburger, described the sandwich as dry, a shock to the digestive system, and literally a thousand calories worth of unnecessary processed cheese. <laughs> um, the average Thai person is expected to only eat 80 grams of cheese per year. In comparison, the average person in Canada, one of the largest cheese-producing countries in the world, is estimated to consume around 13.5 kilograms of cheese in 2023 alone. So... Can you imagine the shock to Taiwanese people that uh, are <laughs> not Taiwanese um, to their guts? To their guts, like I, I don't, I don't quite understand. Like it, it's a meme. It seems like it's an April Fool's joke, right? Like it seems like it's it's uh, that's what they're going for, but it's real. And I've watched TikToks of people taking bites out of these, and it's. It's it's like as if you took a bite out of a block of Velveeta. It, it's just wrong. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, I, I'd like to apologize for some of the visuals that we just shared in that. That was weird. Um, are you okay with... This one will make you less queasy. Concert signs. I don't know if I know what a concert sign is. I mean, like a now playing or playing August 5th or something no. like that outside a, an arena, maybe? No, sorry. I should have been more specific. Signs people make and then bring to concerts and hold up uh, for the artist to see. Mm, okay. Okay. I didn't know people did that. I oh, love you. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. They do that. At least maybe it's just my generation kind of thing. Uh, it's usually signs like, well, I love you, thank you for this music, that kind of stuff. 
and they always block the view of the people standing in behind you. I saw a great video the other day. This girl wrote a sign that said "Marry Me Weekend" at a weekend show, and she was holding it up, and somebody straight up snatched it out of her hand and stomped it on the ground. But it was too busy, so nobody. She didn't see who took it, and then everybody turned and clapped for the person that took the sign out of her hand. I just think it. Well, everyone behind them can't see. I would imagine that's why. Exactly. It's like cowboy hats. Cowboy hats should be illegal at concerts. They take up too much space. I can't see anything. Have courtesy for the short kings. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I feel like this was sort of like pre-planted, so you could vent about have a have a bit of seeing a concert. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, if you're going to a show, uh, I don't know if I've ever noticed signs. Ryan says they're a big deal, yeah. but probably not a sign like this you're going to see. Machine Gun Kelly was performing at Rock Werchter Wurch- Festival in Belgium over the weekend when he saw a fan holding up a sign that said, and we quote, I just came from Mexico for you to punch me. Why do you want me to punch you in the face so bad? I got rings on, dude. That's going to hurt. I don't know. It's a lose-lose for me. I don't know if I'm going to do it. I'll consider. Okay. Um, And eventually, Machine Gun Kelly walked up to the fan and punched him in the face, and the fan, and then told the fan that he loved him. Okay. So, most people, from how I understand Machine Gun Kelly, would like to uh, punch Machine Gun Kelly in the face. Yeah. Because he doesn't have the track record of being a really nice guy. Yeah. It was my thought, too. It's a little ironic. Uh, yeah. And the, the video, like, he straight to, he punches this guy. Like, not crazy hard, but he definitely punches it. And then there's a quick clip that you can see the guy's reaction. And he, you know, he celebrates. He's like, yeah, I got punched in the face by Machine Gun Kelly. It's like, I don't know. I've, some people maybe would like, Machine Gun Kelly's hardcore. She's definitely not, so it just comes across a little cringe. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, the sign, unnecessary, the punch, unnecessary, and uh, the wrong person was punched in this scenario. Traveling from Mexico to Belgium to get punched in the face. (laughs) That's a conversation I would like to have here on The Chef. (laughs) I want to know. Okay, so you worked hard and saved up your money and jumped on a plane to I I don't know the the flights out of like Aero Mexico Mexico and all those things, uh, those those airlines. I I just I'm assuming that they don't have. Maybe they have Cancun to Belgium direct. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. Um, but I just feel like that's a lot of work for a lot of the wrong reasons. And maybe you should sit down and talk to somebody about that. Yeah, yeah. Seems like a bit much. Seems a bit excessive. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, are, that was weird. Are you okay with? <laughs> thumbs up. Thumbs up. I love giving thumbs up. I give thumbs up all the time. I give thumbs up to Jono when he tells me that a guest has joined the show to communicate mm. through the Zoom call. I give thumbs up to my friends and family for various things and i give thumbs up to strangers like if somebody holds the door open for me on the train i'll give them a thanks and a thumbs up i enjoy the thumbs up i know it's you know it's offensive in certain countries it's it's kind of seen as like a middle finger but Mm -hmm. at least here in canada i love i love giving the thumbs up i had did not date much when i 
got separated and divorced. There was one person who I was set up on a, on a, on a date with. And I don't even think we actually ever went out on a date. This person was very, um, very not happy. <laughs> and, um, just not having a good time, just not happy in general and made some comments about, you know, what she hated about her ex was he would always give her a thumbs up. <laughs> hated it. <laughs> and then, oh, um, no. No. And then, so we, we were chatting and then I was like, Hey, are we ever going to get together? I was asked and spend some time together. And I, I said, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm into it. And then, so, um, she said to me something along the lines of, well, look, we, we've either got to spend some time together or, or cut this loose. Cause this whole texting thing's not working for me. And at this point, like the conversation, sometimes you meet people and the conversation is just kind of always negative. And then you sort of know, but they're, you're, they're chatting with them. So that's nice. But you're like, yeah, I don't think I ever want to actually meet you face to face. So she said, but we got to kind of get this moving and get together or let it go. My very last text message to her. <laughs> I sent a thumbs up emoji. <laughs> to which I received a very profane laced response and never heard from again. Oh, Shane, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Wow, I, re- I should check in with Laura and make sure that the thumbs up is not, uh, not, uh, no baggage. You know, is okay. Should make sure yeah. It's okay. Uh, uh, I, yikes. <laughs> I took full advantage of the situation. It was, we had, you know, as a communications person, I would say that we had a clear understanding of what the thumbs up meant. And at that point, that was when I chose to engage in a, a clear message that I was going to move along. Anyway, um, the thumbs up emoji is kind of using universal language. For most people, it means, yes, well done. It's actually not condescending. It's actually not some sort of hidden meaning thing. It's quite simple. In court, though, that's not acceptable, just to be clear. A Canadian farmer has been ordered to pay more than $82,000 in damages over an emoji confusion that a Saskatchewan judge resolved by ruling that a thumbs-up image is enough to accept contractual terms. According to Reuters, Chris Achter, actor maybe, um, the owner of a farming company in Swift Current, Saskatchewan had sent a thumbs up emoji in response to a photograph of a flax buying contract sent to him by a grains buyer in 2021. Months later, when the time of the delivery had arrived, the buyer, which had been doing business uh, with this guy for several years, did not receive it. That started a dispute that led to a far flung search for the equivalent of the Rosetta Stone in cases from Israel, New York State and some tribunals in Canada to unearth what a thumbs up emoji actually means. The buyer, Southwest Terminal, argued that the emoji implied acceptance of contractual terms, while actor later said that the thumbs-up image was only indicate that he received the contract, not to indicate his agreement. In a summary judgment littered with 24 instances of the emoji, Judge T.J. Keene said, I am satisfied on the balance of probabilities that Chris okayed or approved the contract just like he had done before, except this time used a thumbs up emoji. The judge could have avoided this whole catastrophe if he had just listened to these kids. Gen Z is known for setting trends and for telling the <clears throat> old folks what's not cool anymore. <laughs> Apparently there's something that they want all of us old folks to stop using, and that is the thumbs up emoji. According to a Daily Mail article, Gen Z claims that they feel attacked whenever it is used. They say it can be seen as passive aggressive, or even confrontational. 
A poll in the article also cited the 10 emojis that make people seem older. Uh -oh. That list included the lipstick kissy face and the red heart. What, do you, what have you used lately, Jim? <laughs> Any of those? <laughs> I'm checking. <laughs> CBS News. Okay, so that, um, I, what do you think, Ryan? Do you agree? Do you think that a thumbs up means that you're in on the contract? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I think, uh, I think it is at least in my, I, I hold this emoji in high regard. It's a sacred thing. I, I would say yes. If, for example, if, uh, my friend, if I was texting my friend, I was like, Hey man, you want to go for a copy? And he sent a thumbs up emoji. That would mean yes. And then I'd be like, okay, what next? Where do we go? Yeah. And if I said, all right, do you want to go to this place? Let's go to DeVille on 17th Ave. Thumbs up. All right, I'll see you there. Could not agree less. Yeah, really? Okay, you yeah. want the three-letter yes. It's more of a sounds good to me. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. I so, hey, because yeah. you, all you said is you said you want to go to coffee at DeVille, right? Yes. Good idea. It doesn't mean see at two. You know, like I think that that's, um, it's, it, I think it actually means got it. It doesn't mean I'm in. I think I'm in as I'm in. I agree. I think that matters. I disagree with this. I struggle with this. I'm struggling. Down a hard time here. Mm. I think um I think Farmer Man should get his money back. I think that's a deal. Jono, thumbs up. I agree. Yes, no. What do you think? Jono just gave me a thumbs up in the video call. It's radio, <laughs> Jono. That's very funny, but it's radio. You gotta help me out here. <laughs> I mean, thumbs up, it, it depends on the context. In this in this story, um, he should have just said I agree instead of a thumbs up, because that could mean anything. But well, we also don't know all the messages around it either, in all fairness. Like, we are, we are taking this decision on one piece of the, the, the message yeah. string, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show, and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.